This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. As we emerge from our year-long pandemic and a contentious presidential election, many nostalgically aspire to return to the world as it was before. Despite those hopes, our nation is in a different economic, political, and cultural place. Beyond having spent a year of our precious lives sequestered away from our work, our friends, and our family, we've become disoriented as to what our normal lives will look like. What will our new challenges and goals be in a future that has neither a President Trump nor a global pandemic? And which trusted voices can we find to help navigate our lives back to calmer waters? My guest today is journalist and political pundit Ramesh Panero. Mr. Panero is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute since 2012, senior editor for National Review Magazine, a columnist for Bloomberg View, and a contributing editor to the domestic policy journal, National Affairs. Ramesh's writing focuses on how history, culture, the economy, and events combine to create the political landscape of our time. Our conversation will focus on his assessment of the zeitgeist of the nation, what to expect politically and economically as we emerge from the pandemic, and what he sees as the lasting effects of the extraordinary past 12 months. When I return, I'll be joined by Ramesh Panero. Okay, we're back. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Ramesh Panero. Welcome to Hubwonk, Ramesh. Thanks for having me on. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners who ha- may not have read your work, don't know anything uh, about you, uh, your work appears in uh, many places, uh, both uh, publications on what I would call left of center, such as Bloomberg View, and of course, the right of center National Review. You yourself identify as conservative, but you have a pretty broad reach. How do you define the term conservative? What, what does that mean for you? Right. Well, conservatism is a house with many mansions. I think that the the best your practical way to describe conservatism, what it is practically engaged in, but also in a way that um, encompasses some of that diversity within conservatism, is that it is an attempt to conserve the political inheritance that we were bequeathed by our founders. And that is a, that's a very complex enterprise and it's a complex inheritance um, that involves a free society, a well-governed society, a society um, that also knows how to govern the governors. Um, that is to, uh, to limit them, to put them in competition with one another. Uh, and so it is endless work. So you define it as a free people that who are well governed. Um, what responsibility does that offer to individuals? What is our responsibility as uh, individual conservatives, uh, as members of the polity? Well, self government, um, I think, uh, is best understood in terms of subsidiarity, um, which is which is a term often associated with Catholic social thought, which is that problems are handled at the lowest possible level um, that can uh, 
address them. Um, and to be involved in self-government, we must first govern ourselves. We must first exercise self-control and self-discipline and fulfill our duties um, to our families uh, and our communities. Um, and, uh, you know, if, uh, if enough of us did that, um, I think we'd find that some of our political problems and difficulties would melt away. Uh, but beyond that, of course, um, we are called to be uh, good citizens um, who take an interest in um, the life of our country and try to promote the common good. Um, you know, and that means that we are uh, advocating for um, policies that that don't just help ourselves, um, although they certainly can help ourselves as well, um, but, uh, but promote the interests of the entire country. And, um, you know, that we, we have to be able and willing to work together to do that. We have to be able to and willing to persuade one another in the presence of disagreement, sometimes strong disagreement. Uh, and these are all kind of small R Republican habits um, that require cultivation, um, that are not just natural to us. And, uh, you know, I think we, we are probably in a moment right now where we are a little bit less able and willing to persuade one another. You bring up an excellent uh, point. Uh, persuasion, I think, is a big part of what we do when we work in think tanks uh, or write. Um, but I think we seem like we're in a time when uh, there isn't a lot of persuasion going on. Uh, it seems a lot of demonstrating and a lot of uh, posturing, uh, very little debate and persuasion. Are we in a moment now where we're so stuck in our respective tribes that um, persuasion, conversation, debate uh, has 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 disappeared, uh, and with it goes uh, conversations about policy decisions and uh, what's the best path forward for all Americans. Well, I do think that we are a, a pretty polarized country politically. Um, polarization has been increasing over the last 40 or so years. Um, and one of the things that that has led to is um, a politics that is primarily about kind of signifiers of, of tribal affiliation um, rather than um, than actual policy debate. But I do think policy is still important and in some ways offers us a way out of a kind of dead end of tribal warfare because it because it is a way of um, focusing people on something other than their hostilities to one another. Now, you are also a historian beyond being a, a writer. Um, as far as the history of the party, I, I remember far enough back where uh, the concerns over um, the influence of conservatism might have been more focused on cultural issues, um, the moral majority, or um, what would have been back then, concerns about making the nation into something of a handmade tale. Uh, now I find more the pejorative seems to be along the lines of accusing uh, conservatives of being uh, market fundamentalists or um, uh, ideologues, uh, doctrinaire in, in believing in, in liberty and, and free markets above all else. Uh, has that actually been an evolution that's reflected in, a, in the conservative movement, or, or is this just a, a you know, New marketing. 
Well, the concern about market fundamentalism, so-called, is uh, is it, it has been a traditional criticism of conservatives and libertarians by liberals, leftists, and progressives. Um, and in more recent years, it's been taken up again uh, by some conservatives. There's always been a strain of concern about going too far with markets on the right. I mean, you can see it in Russell Kirk, for example, among the, the post-World War II conservatives, but, the, but it's been revived. And I think that that criticism has a number of um, reasons behind it. There are a number of reasons for that revival. And I'd say, uh, I'll just Maybe the, the story to tell, the story that I think best captures this is that is that we had a conservative free market agenda that um, worked quite well in, uh, starting in the late 1970s and early 1980s, um, but became gradually a little bit um, calcified, um, a, a little bit um, uh, outmoded because it was focused on meeting the challenges of that era. And so conservatism, when it talked about economics, became a little bit um, a little bit rigid and a little bit um, uh, out of touch with people. So for example, just to give you an example, I'm one of those people who believes that the federal income tax is too high, too complex, too onerous, uh, and it needs reform, and it need, and it ought to be reduced as well. Um, but there was a, a, a very strong current in conservatism that acted as though the most important thing in economic policy was always to get the top federal income tax rate down, that that was the first and second and third and fourth thing that you needed to do. Uh, and it wasn't really paying as much attention to the fact that Look, Reagan succeeded. We didn't have a 70% income tax rate anymore. We didn't have people being kicked into higher tax brackets because of inflation. In fact, the payroll tax had become a bigger tax for most US households than the income taxes. And so there was a kind of there was a failure to adapt. You didn't, I think, need to change any of your principles, um, your basic conviction that markets work best. Um, that government is a is a is a blunt instrument that often comes with unintended consequences. But I think you did need to um, take account of the changing terrain, and so this led to two things. One, conservatism just sounded too abstract and doctrinaire. It was talking about small government, which is great, but it wasn't talking about how to make small government real in ways that actually solved people's problems. And two, we had this a fairly long period of stagnation in our economy. I mean, if you look from like 2001 to 2015, um, that's the first 15 year period since we started collecting this kind of fine grained statistic where the household at the middle of the income spectrum didn't see any progress. You were at the same median income for households in 2015 that you were uh, in 2001. And you know a lot of our support for free enterprise and our sense that our country worked was based on the idea that it was delivering progress on a regular basis. And, and when that stopped, uh, I think it's understandable that people would start looking for new kinds of answers. And if they're not getting them from free market conservatives, they're going to look elsewhere. So we have a void that uh, was filled by what we have now, perhaps. That's right. Uh, 
So now let's shift our focus to current events. Uh, it seems uh, you may be very right in uh, assuming that uh, conservatives have grown tired of uh, a message of uh, fiscal restraint. We've just passed a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan uh, that is already in addition to, I, I think it's about $4.1 trillion already in the pipeline for uh, early recovery acts. Um, what can you say about this bill, its size, uh, its uh, efficacy to address uh, the hole left by the pandemic, and why is it that uh, we don't seem to see much opposition from traditional Republican voices at this moment? So the economic rationale for this program is, I think, confused. Uh, and you can you can see that in the way it is described, right? People can't agree on whether it should be called a stimulus or whether it should be called COVID relief. Um, but actually, it doesn't have much to do with either one of those things. Um, if you thought we were in a kind of Keynesian depression and you needed to, to pump prime, uh, spend money uh, in order to get the economy back up to its potential, you'd have a much smaller bill. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily be designed the way that this bill is. If it's COVID relief, again, um, you would uh, it would be more targeted, right? You wouldn't have $1,400 checks going to almost every household um, in our country. Um, I, I really think that there's more of a political motivation for this bill, that, that the calculation here is that the economy is going to recover, um, the uh, country is going to be happy because there's a public health recovery as well, and that um, uh, political leaders needed to have their fingerprints on it uh, and be able to point to something and say, we made this happen, we made this possible, um, whether or not it's true. So I think it's a kind of preemptive credit-taking exercise so people don't just think, well, we were going to have a rebound, and uh, and now it's happened, and it doesn't actually have tons to do with a change of administration or a change of senators or or anything like that. As for the bigger question, which I believe is uh, you know all too big a question, um, what has happened to political concern about the debt? I think that voter concern has always been kind of weak. Um, that uh, very, 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 like, it is hard to think of any politician who has ever lost his job because of the federal deficit growing too much. It is easier to think of politicians who have lost their job because they tried to do something about the deficit, rather, whether by raising taxes or by cutting spending. And then I think another reason for this um, kind of blasé attitude we all seem to be having nowadays about the debt is that people made predictions of imminent catastrophe that didn't pan out. So in the early 1980s, the Reagan deficits, as they were frequently called, were supposedly going to lead to rampant inflation, and, and instead inflation dropped. Um, inflation for decades was supposed to lead to high interest rates. And of course, we've had extremely low interest rates. Um, that doesn't mean that it is prudent to be borrowing as much money as the federal government is borrowing, particularly for the kinds of purposes it's borrowing for, which is essentially to finance increased consumption in the present day. 
um, the bill will come due. There will be interest costs that crowd out other things that we want to do, whether it's tax reduction or spending on other priorities. And there's always the potential that you have uh, some kind of fiscal crisis. But the crisis has been so long delayed that there's a you know there's a, there's a crying wolf problem, uh, and not just voters but policymakers, economists, I think, um, take this threat less seriously. Um, than they should. I was talking a couple of years ago to uh, to an economist who was telling me that the story of every fiscal crisis in history can be summed up this way. Uh, too soon, too soon, too late. Yes, um, I, I I tend to uh, worry about this the very same thing. Again, if if two trillion dollars is essentially unnecessary, we've got two trillion more dollars chasing the same goods and services we had before. How can we not expect that to be inflationary in, in nature? Um, Again, we've been crying wolf for a long time, but even uh, folks on the left who, like Larry Summers, who who, mm. who uh, seem to embrace more government spending and more government borrowing, uh, what's the limiting principle and how is it possible that it won't be inflationary? Well, I suspect that it will be at least somewhat inflationary. We've had below 2% inflation um, for more than a decade now, 2% being the Fed's announced target. Uh, and so I, 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 I think that there are quite a few signs that inflation is going to be, uh, that is rising, that expect expectations in the market about future inflation are rising. So I, I think the question is really, how much is that going to be? Are we going, are we talking about three, four, five percent inflation, or are we talking about something more like 2.1 percent inflation? I have tended to uh, be on the low end of that, to think that that we're not going to have um, that much of an increase in inflation. Uh, and that's really mostly based on my reading of what the market indicators of, of inflation expectations are telling us. Um, but you know, part of the problem, I think, when we're talking about the debt, is we have this uh, we have this idea that if it doesn't lead to rampant inflation, well, then it's okay. Um, but I think that you have other potential problems. I mean, you're wasting potentially a lot of money. You're it, the money's not being put to its most and productive use, uh, and you're displacing private what could be otherwise private sector activity that would take place. Um, because it's not just sort of, you know, we, we tend to think of sort of too much money um, chasing too few goods, but it's also sort of too much government money right. um, uh, that is, uh, uh, that is I think, just to some degree displacing um, everything other than the government. Now, Ramesh, I'd like to change our focus to uh, the HR1 uh, bill that's coming out of the House uh, specifically the provisions that attempt to standardize or arguably nationalize the rules governing how states run elections. Um, I, I'd like to label this a solution to a solution to a myth. Uh, the myth on both sides, uh, on the right, largely um, uh, that any vote cast that is not in person on election day is suspected of being fraudulent. On the left, uh, we see that any restriction on voting, uh, whether it be time, place, or a requirement for identification, is tantamount to uh, Jim Crow-style disenfranchisement. Um, do you see this uh, 
attempt to standardize election processes as beneficial? Are we correcting um, uh, flaws of the past? Or are we treading on dangerous ground here? I think the story about what's going on in terms of election procedures at the federal level, at the state level, um, is a very complicated story. I think some of it, some of what the Republicans are doing in, in legislatures, and it's, and it, you know, the, the controversial stuff in the media tends to be the Republican initiatives. Um, they're uh, partly just trying to reverse some of the emergency measures that were taken during the pandemic um, with respect to mail-in voting. And I think, you know, look, maybe some of those things can stay. Maybe some of those, um, some of that attempted retrenchment is a mistake. But in general, uh, I think that there's nothing wrong in principle with saying, look, we took some emergency measures, the emergency's ending. So let's go back to uh, to the more normal procedures. But I think overall, and leaving aside a lot of additional complexity, I think that on the left and the right, there is exactly what you said, myth. There is this, this myth that the election went very, very badly from a procedural standpoint. On the right, it's the idea that there was rampant voter fraud. There's just not evidence that that, that, that there was a significant amount or an increased amount or that mail-in balloting led to more fraud than we usually have, or that was certainly that was enough to change an election. And on the left, it's that there is this rampant voter suppression and people can't vote because of all of these Republican laws. And there's no there's not much evidence for that either. So if you look at voter ID laws, for example, that's the great Republican initiative. I myself think it's a good idea. And I think that if people have trouble with getting voter IDs, then we need to do something to make sure that they've got IDs because you are locked out of a lot of modern life if you don't have some kind of secure identification. But the studies don't suggest that voter ID leads to reduced turnout. We had an extremely high turnout election in November. Um, and, you know, the, so you We've had all these Republican laws passed. They didn't cause voter turnout to be low. And we had all of this expansion of mail-in balloting that didn't cause voter fraud. And it seems to me that on both sides, people are people want to explain political setbacks that they've had in terms of some sort of nefarious plot. So on the right, we didn't really lose. It was voter fraud. On the left, it's not that our ideas are too extreme and Americans aren't actually enthusiastic about those ideas. It's that people were not allowed to vote and the the the, the evil Republicans are anti-democratic and suppressed us. And I just think neither one of these stories has much evidence behind it. Going a little deeper, I, I read a piece of yours. Uh, I think it, it expresses the sentiment that, that says, "We hope it rains in Philadelphia," or, or something to that nature. That Republicans believe their voters are, uh, you know, true hardcore voters that come out during hell and high water, and the low propensity voters, th those who may vote or may may not vote, or are sort of on the fence. Those represent more Democratic voters. So by making it harder to get there, uh, hoping it rains, uh, it favors the Republicans. You you wrote a piece that said that's absolutely not true. That uh, there is no uh, um, a pattern that follows that Republican voters come out no matter what, and uh, Democratic voters need to be persuaded. You know, that th this gets back to what I was saying about 
um, the need to adjust to changing circumstances. Um, because whatever else, you know, look, I mean, let me put it this way. It's understandable when you've got a voter coalition that is made up of people who are reliable and consistent voters and the sort of the marginal voter who comes out sometimes doesn't always is more likely to be a Democrat. And if you're a Republican, then you're going to sort of constantly be cheering for lower turnouts and fearing higher turnout. You know, whatever else you can say about it, it's an understandable impulse that people have. But it's outdated, I think, because that is an artifact of a long, long period in our political history when Republicans were the party of the college-educated white voter. And those are that's a group of people that is their high-propensity voters. But as we've seen in recent elections, this is now a long-running trend and a particularly accelerated under um, President Trump or first candidate and then President Trump, uh, Republicans have lost a lot of those um, college-educated white voters and postgraduate degree-holding white voters and have picked up um, more blue-collar voters, um, a lot of white blue-collar voters, but some Hispanic and, and African-American as well, and, uh, and some Asian-Americans too. And what this means is that that old calculation no longer applies. Uh, and so if you have a higher turnout election, it doesn't mean that it necessarily favors Democrats, uh, or at least that it favors Democrats as much as it once did. And, it, you know, again, look at this last election. We had a high turnout election. A lot of those Senate candidates for the Republicans ended up winning, right? They, they won in North Carolina. They won in Iowa. In the House, Republicans picked up about a dozen seats. Um, I, again, with a high turnout election, Trump came within, if I remember the numbers correctly, about 43,000 votes spread across three states of having gotten a tied electoral vote and, and throwing it into the House where he, he would have almost certainly have won. Um, uh, and that's with certain certain disadvantages that Republicans had going in to this election. Um, notably, the fact that the top issue was the pandemic and and voters thought that President Trump had not done a great job on it. Um, you, you add all of that up, and it seems to me that um, that Republicans have much, much less to fear than they think about high turnout. And to the extent that some of these voting procedure changes that Republican state legislators are making are motivated, at least at the back of people's minds, by that concern that high turnout is a bad thing for them, that just may no longer be true. Of all the questions I have for you today, uh, among the ones I consider most important are those that address uh, the current move to uh, get rid of the filibuster in the U.S. Senate. Uh, we mentioned earlier in the show that uh, Republicans or Republican sentiment values uh, tradition, uh, process, um, the Senate has been uh, called the world's greatest deliberative body, uh, and the essence of the filibuster is you really do need a, uh, a large majority in order to get uh, legislation passed, uh, 60 members, not, not just 50 plus one. Um, do you see the attempt or the consideration of uh, getting rid of the filibuster as a fundamental change in how our government runs, or is it just another in a, um, a series of processes uh, that will essentially change and just move on as if it never happened. So uh, it's going to be a live issue for a while um, because it's not just related to the passions of the moment. There's just there's a permanent tension there where majorities want to get their way uh, and want to exploit the moments when they're in power. 
and minorities typically, you know, want to act as a break. Um, none of those, those those things, I think, are just baked into human nature. Uh, and so, while you know the the issue may wax and wane as a controversy, that's that's always going to be with us. Um, I think that there are sort of two ways of thinking uh, about this. One is that we need to encourage congressional deliberation um, to get around polarization. Um, and the other is that we need to um, give up on the possibility of deliberation and just let majorities sort of get their way because polariz polarization is insurmountable. Um, and look, that's not an insane view, right? I mean, I think you can look at our trajectory and think, well, you know, we're never going to be able to make kind of divided government or shared power uh, work for the foreseeable future. But I think it's the wrong path. I think that uh, that the right path is to try to sort of pull ourselves back from the brink. Um, and that involves, I think, maintaining structures that require us to build some sort of cross-party consensus. And maybe in some cases that means you do smaller piecemeal pieces of legislation instead of trying to do this, these sort of gigantic bills. Um, but that's, that's something that does not come easily to the partisan mind. Yes, it does seem odd that uh, given how uh, closely we're divided or how evenly we're divided, we have 50-50 in the Senate and a nearly even House uh, count, uh, it does seem odd that we would be aspiring to be ruled by a simple majority. But when we talk about these two camps um, uh, and how evenly they're split, they are dynamic in their composition. Uh, you mentioned uh, a general trend of more educated people moving in the direction of the Democrats, more working class people perhaps towards the Republicans. What is it that drives this movement of one group or another uh, into one camp or into another camp? Is it a deliberate attempt by parties to decide who are their members, or is it something else out there? Well, I think that, that some of these shifts sort of um, take on a momentum of their own. Uh, and I mean, I think so, to, so a closely connected shift in the parties was when the Republican Party became the party of social conservatives and the Democratic Party became a party of social liberals. That's a process that took several decades, but it sort of it fed on itself. Um, so, you know, if you're in the House Democratic caucus, um, you look around and all of a sudden the pro-life, pro-gun Democrats who used to be in the room with you, they're not there anymore. They lost their reelection. They lost their primary. Um, and so when the House Democrats are making a decision, those people aren't there anymore to tell um Nancy Pelosi or whoever the leader is at any particular time, look, my district can't go for that. I can't go for that. Let's not do that. And, you know, and then sort of maybe the, the other, the, the people who are left on the margin of the party are kind of left behind and they drop out. So the party just moves more and more left on social issues. And something similar happened to the Republicans on social issues. That's one of the reasons why we have this shifting class base, because sort of the cultural conservatives tended to be more working class voters. And a lot of the more affluent college educated voters tended to be more social liberal. And when people started voting on social issues rather than voting on you know, their tax bills um, or their perceived economic interests, 
um, then, you know, they then those affluent, more affluent voters started voting more Democratic and those uh, blue collar voters started voting more Republican. Uh uh, I know the shift is, you know, may, perhaps makes incumbents uneasy, but uh, given that um, there are far more, uh, let's say, working class people without uh, graduate degrees than there are uh, with degrees, uh, wouldn't that be a good trend for Republicans in the future? Uh, again, much has been made of of the migration mm-hmm. of um, non-white voters into the Republican Party. If that trend continues uh, and the Republican Party becomes a, a pro-family, pro uh, worker party. Um, wouldn't that mean, uh, never ending election victories, uh, forever? Well, that is a, that is a huge if, um, because, uh, there's been a little bit of an exaggeration of the, um, uptick in, uh, minority support for Republicans. It's real. Um, it is definitely important. It is worth looking at, but we are not yet at where Republicans have, uh, not attained the peak non-white performance that they got um, in 2004. They're doing, they're, they've got a lower percentage of African-Americans, a lower percentage of Asian-Americans, lower percentage of Hispanics. Um, it's higher than in 2012, um, but there's quite a ways to go. And uh, I mean, I think, you know, everybody can, can see Republicans have his, have tended for the last two generations to have some problems um, with minority voters. So that I think is the biggest um, caveat. If Republicans find a way to overcome that uh, and they start attracting working class voters of all parties, um, well, then I think that there is a very, very serious potential um, for Republicans to have a majority, uh, maybe even a, a largest majority, but we're not there yet. We're running out of time. I want to make uh, my last question to, to be uh, one that I often get myself. Uh, uh, friends of mine on the left and friends of mine on the right uh, will often come to me and ask for my opinion about uh, various topics. And, and then they invariably ask, where do you get your information? How do you find reliable information in, in the sea of uh, highly polarized, highly partisan uh, news sources? Uh, so let me turn that question to you. Uh, you're someone whose opinion I deeply respect. Where does someone like Ramesh Panaro find reliable information on which they they can uh, build a worldview and perhaps uh, make recommendations to uh, other wonks and and legislators? Well, I think it's important to read a variety of sources. Um, so you're not just hearing an echo chamber. Um, and I think it's also important to sort of follow people over time and see who who's, who proves worthy of trust mm-hmm. over time. I certainly read my colleagues at, uh, at National Review online um, a lot. Uh, but, you know, Bloomberg Opinion, you know, as you said, it's they're totally different political perspectives. My my colleagues at Bloomberg Opinion tend there's some centrists, a lot of progressives and one or two of us on the right there. Um, and so but you get really informed, intelligent perspectives and you'll get I mean, even just those two media outlets, you'll get um pretty well informed. And then you do you know, follow the links uh, because um, you'll often get more of the story and things that are interesting and important often, although not always, um, tend to to cause ripples in other media outlets and people will talk about them. And uh, just, you know, there's, no, there's just no, I think, um, 
there's no substitute for kind of lively curiosity. Wise words indeed. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, find uh, sources you trust, but importantly, those that you trust over time, those that don't get swept up in the moment or in the latest craze. Uh, those are those are sources that are hard to find. Uh, I regard you as one of those trusted sources. So thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you being on Hubwonk today. You're welcome, and thank you for the kind words. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your favorite podcatcher. We would welcome a five-star rating or a favorable review, or if you like, just simply share us with friends. If you have ideas for me or comments, or perhaps suggestions for future episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.